Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today you'll be shocked to learn. Natalia Petrozello will talk about the history of fitness culture in the U.S. And the sociologist Paolo Gerbaldo will explore the weakness of the Italian bourgeoisie and what makes the country so susceptible to fascism. Time is tight, so I'll keep my comments short. My first guest, Natalia Mailman Petrozella, is making a return appearance on Behind the News. She was on just over a year ago to talk about why our schools are such politically fraught places, the topic of her first book, Classroom Wars. Now she's about to publish a new book, Fit Nation, The Pains and Gains of America's Exercise Obsession, from the University of Chicago Press. It was supposed to be out already, but production delays have forced pushing back the publication date to January. It's a history of fitness culture from the late 19th century, when it was part of the circus's display of human oddities, until now, when everyone wants to go to the gym, but only about 20% of us actually do. Natalia Mailman Petrozella teaches history at the New School for Social Research, an institution with a distinguished progressive history that's treating its adjunct teaching staff very badly, driving them to the point of striking, about which we'll hear more next week. She also teaches fitness, a somewhat unusual pairing of careers. Natalia Mailman Petrozella. You more or less begin the book with the story of this guy, I don't know how Germanized to pronounce his name, Eugen Sandow. Eugene Good Sandow. job. <laughs> Eugene Sandow is the way we like often talk about him in the United States. But yeah, of course you have the yeah, German, but right? Yeah, it, it was a fake name anyway, right? So, um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, he was one of the uh, the early exemplars of this kind of fitness culture. What, who was he and like, what kind of cultural reception did he face? He was an early strongman. And by strongman, I don't mean a guy that you see lifting weights at the gym with everyone else because there was no one else at the gym and not very many gyms. I mean, he was this Prussian-born guy who went on world tours and became became very famous for his feats of strength. And so he would like bend iron bars and have like cars put on his chest. And he is important, one, because he was a hugely attractive spectacle. Like he would pack auditoriums night after night in the circus and whatnot. But he also was really important because one, he began to popularize strength training as something that everyday people should do. But also he was really caught up in sanitizing strength training and exercising and making it seem that this was not just a brute strength. Like he would always say, I am not a mere breaker of, of stones, but rather he would say like, you know, strength training is part of being civilized. This is about like self-discipline. He was gay too, right? Yes. I mean, you know, he obviously didn't come out with that at the time. Um, but yeah, he did live with another man. Um, and so it's pretty much presumed that, yes, he was gay. And that was something that, that the fitness industry is going to have to contend with for decades to follow. Oh, absolutely. So what's hard for people to really wrap their head around today is the idea that deliberate exercise for men was considered suspicious in terms of their heteronormative masculinity. Men who exercise constantly were having to explain like, no, really, I'm straight. No, really, I'm a normal guy. Back to him, uh, Sandow. And this was also the time of, um, there's this book, uh, Masculinity at Harvard, that was all about how uh, people like Teddy Roosevelt were anxious that the American man, as people were moving into indoor work with no heavy lifting, was getting soft. This desk-bound culture was decadent. TR became this crazy fitness nut. How did this fitness culture fit in with this fear of, of, of a softening of the American culture? Oh, absolutely. So there's this fear, as you mentioned, of the softening of the American culture, of particularly of men who the quote unquote better sort of men who were this kind of like growing white middle class who are working in these desk jobs. And the, the logic was that proof of their intellectual supremacy is that they're working with their heads, not their hands. But then there was this problem that if you're working with your ha- head and not your body, your body is becoming soft and subject to these kind of quote unquote desk diseases. 
is. What needs to happen? Well, men of the better sort need to start deliberately cultivating their strength. That creates like this foundation where uh, men are encouraged, you know, slowly but surely to go out and exercise. There's a women's counterpart for this too that Sandow is definitely involved in as a celeb, as someone who is a proponent of this, which says that women, and they very deliberately mean white men and women, white women are like wearing corsets and, you know, not exercising and becoming actually frail and weak. And they're not procreating. When you read Sandow's writing and the writing of other people like Bernard McFadden at the time, part of it is you go girl, like he's telling women not to wear corsets until, you know, lift light weights. But then you read why. And a lot of the rationale for why this strength training and exercise should happen is to create more little white babies at a moment when there was a fear both about declining masculinity and the softening of white American men, but also about what they called race suicide at the time, right? That in a moment of all of this immigration, in particular among people who are doing manual labor, so thus kind of physically hardy and having more children, that the white race would die out. And I think that's really important because it's very explicit in the writings of these like early fitness enthusiasts, that kind of perpetuation of the white body and of whiteness is really part of what they're so excited about. How did this pass through the 20s and 30s? So in the 20s and 30s, well, one thing that happens is that some of these uh, strong men become enterprising and they are selling kind of tips to exercise and they're catching on more and more, especially as you have um, this service economy and people who feel that they should be investing in kind of offsetting this more sedentary lifestyle. Similarly, at the same time, you have all of these physical education activists who are saying, yeah, you know, exercise is good. It's not just something people should do on stage. Like we need physical education programs. And actually by 1929, you have a pretty robust presence of PE in American classrooms. I would say it's hard to compare, but like pretty robust even comparing to today. Then the 1930s come, which obviously is the depression. And so there's a huge pullback on what people are investing in, in terms of public programming. But interestingly, there is a big effort through the New Deal, one to invest in like public playgrounds, like little known fact is that Muscle Beach was initially a works project administration playground with programs for young kids. But also there is a really important initiative in terms of all this, which was the Civilian Conservation Corps. And what was the CCC doing? They were promoting the fact that skinny, undernourished, depression-era teens and young men could get out into the woods and be working on important public works projects. And really importantly, and this is so central to their marketing, put meat on their bones and muscle on their bodies. And I draw on the work of Rachel Louise Moran in doing this. She wrote an amazing book about this called Governing Bodies, but it's wild. Like they're advertising for young men to sign up for these federal programs. And literally part of the the sign up is like the boy comes home and the dad is like, wow, you put a lot of meat on those bones and he's got all these muscles. And I think that's really important because that's a really crucial step in moving from like the freak show era of like, ooh, look at that guy on stage to the era today where, you know, so many Americans are buying gym memberships. Many of them don't use them, but they feel like they should be participating in it. And so I think the 30s, even with all of these budget cutbacks, are important in kind of sanitizing that notion that um, to be fit and to look it is actually something really good. My father was in the CCCs. He loved it. He never stopped talking about it till the day he died, practically. He had some photos of him and his friends, real beefcake photos of guys in white t-shirts. It- oh, really? That's amazing. Okay. I'm glad that your personal experience coheres with my historical analysis. Yeah, I should scan one of these photographs and send it to you. And really could have appeared in the magazine. I mean, these guys are all, you know, maybe 20 years old and look tremendous because they've been building national parks or whatever it was they were doing. Right. And how different that is. So you see that that's such a great, vivid example. But like, the difference in what people associated with the muscular body, like from Sandow, who was like, oh my gosh, this guy sits around all day, like lifting weights and powdering his muscles, like that is suspicious versus, ooh, that guy's so muscular. He must be out building national parks and helping us get out of the depression. I mean, it totally shifts the association, right? Okay, so let's go uh, after the war, uh, the 1950s, the Eisenhower administration uh, was uh, very concerned with fitness. And I just found it hilarious that Nixon was put in charge of the program. <laughs> 
I mean, I could just hear, we are not a nation of softies. We can become one. But it was very martial, right? It was uh, not uh, not about fun and uh, health and happiness, but uh, about beating the Soviets. That's exactly right. So that's another crucial stage. And, you know, Eisenhower really like picks up on a cue from a woman named Bonnie Pruden, who is this homemaker, outdoors enthusiast, who realizes all these kids in her suburb are quote unquote getting soft. And so she is the one who really sounds the alarm and she gets the ear of the White House. And it's Eisenhower who's like, yeah, this is a national security problem. And so with Nixon at the helm of this committee, they start putting together this really robust physical fitness program, which is all about like military readiness. And as you say, I think it's really important because you know you have the White House really for the first time as an institution, not just like Teddy Roosevelt in the strenuous life, but as an institution saying we need PE in schools. This is about really our national security. But it's so right that the idea of fitness as fun or even as inclusive to girls or people who might not be soldiers is not there at all. And there's nothing fun about Eisenhower's fitness programs. In the private sector, we have people like uh, Jack LaLanne and Vic Tanney transforming the landscape. What, what was their contribution? Yes, absolutely. So there really is this kind of exciting period, I would say, in the 50s and 60s, where you have pretty robust public attention to physical activity and recreation, but you also have this private sphere. We had had at Muscle Beach, which moved from Santa Monica to Venice Beach in the 1950s amid great controversy, this scene that had become a national attraction, like all of these first acrobats and weightlifters who would do all these tricks and people would come watch them. And it was this wholesome example of like Southern California healthy life. On the other hand, all of those old CD associations with weightlifting and with strength training still were very present. And like all of these local conservatives thought it was disgusting and these people have nothing better to do with their days than to, you know, lift weights. Now, a few enterprising people from Muscle Beach went on to have these major careers. And as you mentioned, two of the most interesting are Jack LaLanne and Vic Tanny. So Jack LaLanne becomes most famous through his television show, The Jack LaLanne Show, when LaLanne pitched studio execs with this idea that he was going to have this morning program where he was going to ask people, mostly homemakers, to like set aside what they were doing and exercise with him, people were like, you're crazy. Nobody would watch a TV show about exercise that actually makes them exercise. Like People who are watching TV in the morning are doing it while they're kind of multitasking, doing their other things. People were shocked. Lots of people watched. He created this whole um, genre, really, of exercise TV. And the content of what he was encouraging people to do, I think, is really interesting, too. I think he created kind of another domestic chore for women. Like He was like, okay, now you're done with your ironing. Now it's time to do your exercises. And there was this kind of dark undertone where he would say, like, if you are aging in a way you don't like or your hips are spreading, you have no one to blame but yourself. Because if you did my exercises, you would feel great. So there's that side of it. But then there's also, I think, this like really lovely concept of me time for exercise, where he's also saying, you know, movement is this cheap and easy way for you to feel good and have some time for yourself, which is also true. And he would say, so set everything else aside. The kids are at school. You're going to exercise with me for 30 minutes. We still have that tension with us. And I think Lelaine is really the one who kind of introduced um, that, certainly on television, and uh, really an important contribution and a complicated one. Vic Tanny, very different side of the gym industry. So he and his brother Armand were these weightlifters who came out to Muscle Beach from Rochester, New York. Vic, in particular, was such a leader in creating chain gyms. And so what Vic Tanny did was create these Tanny health spas, which if you go back and look at them, are just these like amazing architectural environments where he was trying so hard to show that these are not these dingy places filled with sweaty men. And so he had advertised them and many of them were like this. He's like, tropical fish tanks, wall-to-wall carpets, children's areas, bowling alleys. And he wanted to bring ladies in and he worked so hard to kind of equate luxury and affluence with exercise. I'm speaking with the historian Natalia Petrozella, author of Fit Nation from the University of Chicago Press. 
Tani also um, illustrated a very unsavory aspect of some of this culture, which was he discriminated against black people. He insisted on locating his gyms in pretty snazzy neighborhoods. And, you know, there's this heritage of, of, of class and race discrimination uh, around some of this. Yeah, I think that's so important. And, um, you know, one of the things I struggled with in writing this book is in some ways, like a lot of this story is a white story because the fitness culture has had a lot, has very much tracked with the interests and the preoccupations of um, the kind of leisured class, which in our unequal society tends to be a lot of white people. But one of the ways that I think, I hope I dealt with that responsibly was looking at, well, how did that whiteness and that exclusivity happen, right? How did that get made? And that's both a larger societal story story and one which is encoded in the very specific decisions of people in this community. And yes, you're right. Vic Tanny was so interesting going through these ads and ads that were not just for consumers, but ads which were, which were, were for potential franchisees, which would say like, apply for a license to open a Tanny club only in the best neighborhoods, only you know with these particular specifications. And it was so clear that this was a way to connect the brand, not only with a protein idea of luxury, but with whiteness. Like there's a reason that those neighborhoods are considered classy. A lot of them were deliberately segregated through restrictive real estate deals. And then of course, there were also just like the membership roles of particular clubs where there were a couple of lawsuits about exclusivity around race. So I really did try to draw attention as much as I could to the way that it happened that fitness has become a sign of inequality and also of racial segregation in our country as well. I was also reminded of a friend of mine uh, who had a job in a health and racket club in New York City in the early 80s. Part of his job was to usher out ugly people and discourage them from joining. Um, so there's that too, right? Oh, totally. So one of the things that I track through here and I hope comes through is that like, you know, the history of fitness in America is in some ways one of expanding inclusion and progress for a bunch of identity categories. And in other ways, it creates new hierarchies. And this issue of like who belongs in a fitness club is really part of that. And I think that, you know, especially in this era that you talk about in the early 80s, you hear again and again, people saying like, well, no, like I'll join a gym, but I need to get in shape at home before I can even go into a gym because that's a place where like the already beautiful and fit people hang out. That is still the case, I think, in some places, especially in places like the neighborhood where I'm sitting right now in downtown Manhattan. But I think that has changed. Like there's been some demographic data and industry data that I cite, I think at the end of the book about like the graying of the gym demographic that, you know, like I think uh, at one point in the very recent past, the most frequent um, consumer or like member of gyms was over 55. There's really been an expansion, I think, in that regard of age and to a certain extent, size in terms of who's included in these fitness environments. No, but for sure, that was the case. I mean, I think I quoted someone from the Vertical Club in the 1980s, which was like a really sceny gym in New York City on 61st and 1st, who said something like, oh, we don't have any fat people here. I mean, can you imagine today someone saying about it, saying that about the gym? Like, you want people who are fat to be there, one, because they're paying, but two, because that's the, a target consumer, right, of somebody who might want to get in the gym. All right, let's talk a bit about gender now. Um, the early days of fitness were very much male-dominated, much less so now. Women's fitness was increasing in salience as Betty Friedan was writing about you know, the suburban misery of the housewife. Um, how, do, how do these things relate to each other? First, to like go back to kind of an earlier history, yes, absolutely. There were all of these ideas that women were too frail to exercise and it would make them unladylike and competitive. On the other hand, there's a different way in which it was actually a little bit easier to sell fitness to women, which is that women were considered totally normal if they cared about how their body looked. So in the early 20th century, you actually have these kind of like proto fitness programs, but they're really beauty techniques, right? So I talk about Elizabeth Arden and Helena Rubinstein having these sort of exercise studios that are connected to their beauty salons. And the idea is that gentle body work actually is appropriate for women because women care about how their bodies look. So I think that's super important. But then, yes, the 60s and 70s, something very interesting happens. That emphasis on kind of body work to achieve conventional feminine 
looks doesn't go away, usually weight loss. But of course, you have feminists who are centering a lot of their critique around um, the body, right? And part of that, I mean, we see most famously come to fruition in Title IX with women saying, hey, we can run longer distances. We can lift weights. We deserve to have athletic scholarships and equal funding for teams. And that story should continue to be told, but has been told so much. And what I try to say there is that, you know what, all of that kind of feminist ferment around women's bodily strength actually almost had a bigger impact on more women who weren't going out for teams, but who might go to a dance aerobics class or a yoga class, that that kind of sensibility was actually filtered into a lot of these exercise studios. Pretty much every single one of them grapples with that tension between kind of celebrating female strength and the community established in these environments and also being like, don't you want to look pretty for your husband? <laughs> you know? And so I think that, um, I, I really just like love exploring that because I do think that tension in some ways, in the, some of the older examples, it feels so kind of like retro when you look at these old videos. But on the other hand, every studio today is still kind of living in that. It's both about like toning up and being like, come on, girl gang, you know, <laughs> get your women together. And I think those tensions are very real. And a little bit more on the uh, politics. <laughs> Slavoj Žižek once said that a gym membership is often a prelude to a right-wing turn politically. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that. What do, you, what do you make of that? It depends which gym, I'd say that. I mean, that's definitely true. I mean, in the latter part of the book, I talk about, well, throughout the book, quite honestly, I talk about all these people with these totally reactionary viewpoints that they connect very much to their bodily training. We talked about Sandow and white supremacy in here, but there is also, I mean, Vic Tanny was like this hardcore cold warrior who saw like pumping up at the gym as like the ultimate example of like building American strength and bootstrapping and like, you know, doing it on your own. And more recently, I talk about like an alt-right fitness community or subculture where pretty extreme examples, some of these clubs are seen as, seen as basically like training for race war, training for the apocalypse, and especially honoring like an old school brutish masculinity, which a lot of them very much like in the early 20th century say is under attack from all of these like woke left-wing influences. So all of that is still present, but I would argue that depending where you are and who you're talking to, that a lot of fitness has galvanized kind of left-wing and progressive movements as well. And really, I mean, the cover of the book is purple. It's a purple yoga mat. But one of the reasons that I really love that design is because one of my arguments is that the reason that fitness culture has only grown and grown and grown and grown and grown over the last century plus is because both right and left, red and blue, purple, can meet at the gym. And gym culture is shapeless or amorphous enough that people can invest their own political identities into that and like come away totally satisfied with why it makes sense that lifting weights is an act of political liberation, you know, for progressivism, or is like the way to gird yourself for the coming race war against the wokes. Fitness ideology, though, can fit in with, um, I think the founder of Whole Foods said a couple of years ago, we don't need single-payer healthcare because if people take care of themselves and eat well and, you know, stay fit, they don't really need to worry about healthcare. I mean, there is a certain sense in which, like, the whole fitness culture is you have to be responsible for your own health, and it's not a social affair. That's exactly right and so important. And um, I think one of the reasons that, you know, so much of fitness culture and yoga culture has really resonated with libertarians in particular is exactly this, like this strong emphasis on personal responsibility, right? It is up to you to get out there and run, to watch your weight, to make enough money that you can afford good food and, and your future is in your hands. And I look at that resonance a lot through the lens of jogging and the fact that you have, you know, Oral Roberts University, this evangelical college, which is like all in on the cardio movement because they see it as so much of like a demonstration of God's grace in a lot of ways. Like if you're out there caring for your body, what better example of um, the fact that you are in, in God's good graces? At the same time, though, the same activity, jogging or other kinds of fitness um activities 
I think, particularly in the 60s and 70s, really resonated particularly with women and some other marginalized groups who had seen the government, institutionalized medicine, big pharma as kind of conspiring against them. And so in that sense, the idea that it's up to you to take care of your health, you know your body best, your health is in your hands, can actually feel like a form of self-determination and liberation. And it's so wild to see like the same activity, running, yoga, both being claimed as of a piece with a kind of left-wing political liberation that's about claiming bodily autonomy and this like pretty hardcore right-wing personal responsibility ethos. But then again, that's why like running is a huge industry and I think why it's been around for so many decades. And finally, a theme you talk about throughout the book is uh, that most of our fitness activity is extremely privatized. This is what gives it a class and race bias because it depends upon people's own resources to fund their own fitness. And that public funding, despite you know all these high-minded presidential um, committees and declarations, the funding has not really been there. No, I think that's absolutely right. So I tell this story about like the expansion of the idea that fitness is a virtue and good for you and everybody should do it. And that's actually can be really inclusive, but also oppressive. But at the same time, the contraction of a kind of public commitment to making access to fitness and exercise a right rather than a private commodity. And that is really the tragic story of fitness in the United States. We've never been more certain as a culture or a polity that exercise is good for you and everybody should have it as parts of their lives. But we have basically abdicated the kind of public responsibility to create those opportunities. We've got gyms on every block now, even in, you know, more low-income neighborhoods, but we are cutting physical education um, budgets. We are shutting down parks, not having streets lit well. People who work gig jobs are not able to plan to go to the gym, especially if they live far from one or live, forget a gym, live far from, you know, a running trail or somewhere where they could, um, that would have a kind of affordable and inclusive program. So yeah, to me, that is the big tragedy. The widespread embrace of the notion that fitness is virtuous and good for you and we should all do it, which I think is generally pretty good, and the kind of contraction of opportunities to actually do so. That was the historian Natalia Mailman Petrozella, author of Fit Nation from the University of Chicago Press. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Nothing Else Matters, the first of two covers of that Metallica classic we'll hear on this show, this performed by Phoebe Bridgers. Next, the Italian social structure, specifically the weakness of its bourgeoisie, a structure that, as my next guest argues, makes it especially vulnerable to fascism. Paolo Gerbato is a sociologist who teaches at King's College London and is also a fellow at the Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. He was on the show in July to explain why the technocratic government of Mario Draghi, the central banker, was being succeeded by a right-wing coalition led by a new prime minister, Giorgio Maloney, who traces her political pedigree back to Mussolini. Paolo Gerbato. We were chatting on Twitter the other day, and uh, you're talking about um, the weakness of the Italian bourgeoisie, which um, helps explain much of Italian politics. Could you describe what, what you mean by that? What, what is the, uh, the nature of it, the Italian bourgeoisie? Did they never successfully form a national one? Historically, uh, it has to do with the fact that the Italian economy has a very different physiognomy, has a very different structure, really, than uh, many other Western countries. It is famous for being a kind of petty bourgeois country par excellence. So where you have 
many people who were bourgeois in a sense that they are, for example, homeowners of the have a small company, but you don't have many big bourgeois. You don't have the grand bourgeoisie. Uh, you don't have a financial bourgeoisie that is developed as, as in other countries. And you don't have much of a culture of joint stock companies, of the modern form of, of the capitalist enterprise, right, as it developed in many other countries. Now, there are large companies like Fiat, of course, is uh, iconic in the world. Uh, and actually, it, it was buying Chrysler. It was. So you're saying it's, it's fallen on hard times? I mean, a friend of mine who studies a lot manufacturing just posted this graph, which was astonishing, as it pointed that in terms of car produced per thousand inhabitants, Italy is now the lowest, <laughs> as the lowest number of car produced in the country related to the, to the population in all of Western Europe. Three times more car are produced in Spain these days than in Italy. Italy is famous around the world for cars, right? I mean, it was famous, famous around the world for luxury cars, Ferrari, Lamborghini, but also for cars like Fiat cars, like, like, like popular cars. That sector was, was really devastated. And partly it goes also back to that very reason, because I mean, the Agnelli family, Fiat was a family capitalist firm one whose uh, destiny very much rested on the whims of a single family that has been notorious time and again for kind of wasting the funds of the firm and not directing it towards productive ends. How much is that as a function of the damage that um, European manufacturing has suffered in, or is, is it hitting Italy harder than uh, the rest of this continent? Italy is still the second largest manufacturing country in Europe. After Germany, so it is still has a very significant manufacturing base, and it has some jewels, some elements of excellence there in many sectors. Some sectors that are good for civilian purposes, some sectors that are less good. I mean, defense is one of the these world excellent sectors, and is one that is growing as well. But much of the manufacturing base has been devalued in a sense that it has turned into the production of intermediate products of parts, basically, for, for German industry. It has firmly entered the orbit of, of German manufacturing, uh, which means that the, much of the manufacturing is low-added-value manufacturing. It's producing components that then go into whatever German car, German machinery. So in a way, especially in northern Italy, has entered what is sometimes described, I mean, what Alevi described as, as the German bloc economically. How much is this the result of Italy's late unification, the uh, intense regional differences in the country? Completely, because I think it's very interesting. And that their Gramsci was really very enlightening about that, about the process of the process of national formation also has to do with the process of formation of, of a national bourgeoisie. The peculiarity of Italy, in parallel with Germany, basically being the representatives of the two great foes, the German tribes and the Roman Empire, that then marked the beginning of, of the Middle Ages and so on and so forth, they, it was very late in the process of unification. Germany, I think, is 1870. Italy is 1871, the, the final unification of the country. And what happens is that with that process, that means that you have different regional bourgeoisie and municipal bourgeoisies in different cities that are very historical and embedded, but that somehow don't fuse into a national bourgeoisie, capable, as Gramsci would put it, to become not only a directing class, but to become also an hegemonic class. So a class that can somehow embody a sort of national interest that can see its interest, its capitalist interest, as not just being a class interest, but as being a national interest, which is really the definition of hegemony in Gramsci's terms, right? Moving from a more kind of corporate economic, uh, short-sighted view of one's interest to a more universalist, class alliance view of, of one's interests. How did Germany escape this problem? Yeah, that is a good question that may have to do with the very scale of the German space, it may have to do with... Uh, greater availability of, of uh, natural resources, uh, coal, 
in the case of Italy, what that has led to is in a way a parallel modes of production like going on in, in, in a sense that you have a capitalism that in many respects remains a petit bourgeois capitalism, a rentier capitalism. And on top of that, yes, some large firms mostly being family owned, but with the large Italian firms that really led the so-called economic miracle of the 60s and 70s, having been, crucially, state-owned firms. What did the Mussolini era do for bourgeois class formation? That was a very important moment in that process. We know that sociologically, in terms of economic sociology, that kind of economic structure, very vast, pity bourgeoisie, is precisely the perfect condition that is conducive to the rise of fascist movements in times of crisis. The petit bourgeois is in this paradoxical position where, on the one hand, he, she is an honor, but on the other hand, is extremely fragile. Is always not one paycheck, but say one crisis away from being thrown into the proletariat. And this situation of fragility is what feeds statolatry the petit bourgeois capitalist uh, fear and, and desire to be protected by the state. Italy also has a pretty historically um, militant working class. Does that have any um, effect on a bourgeois class formation? In that context, obviously, uh, the rise of, of fascist movements, the function of, of fascism from the perspective of the capitalist class was halting the working class uh, rebellion that some fear would mature into a revolution. What fascism does is repressing the working class offensive and providing the capitalist with, with a means to keep things under control and allowing a space where Italian capitalism could once again be on a profit-making scenario by disciplining workers, keeping wages down, bringing order, in quotes, back and that allows, obviously, capitalist firms to uh, find, again, a, a space where, where, where to function economically, where to expand. Some economists basically say that the, actually the initial period of Mussolini, it has many elements that these days we would call neoliberal, in the sense that it is kind of fiscally conservative, wants to have a solid lira, it wants to make the system competitive. And in terms of labor relations, right, it wants to discipline workers in order to defend property relations. And it's only actually in the later phase, especially since in the aftermath of uh, the 29 crisis, that it takes the more protectionist, state capitalist, and autarkic phase that perhaps these days is still associated with the economics of fascism. Do a lot of the large state firms uh, date from those days? Some of them do. One uh, is the IRI, the Institute for uh, Industrial Reconstruction, the big cartel of state-owned firms. And it was established in the 1933, exactly by the fascist regime, the public holding company that is called to restructure and finance uh, various banks and private companies that have gone bankrupt because of the effect of, of, of the Great Depression. Then IRI basically continues after the end of, of the Second World War, when like it, re it really becomes a, an institute for Italian reconstruction after disaster of the Second World War, and basically continues until 1992, which for Italy is, in a way, really the beginning of, of neoliberalism. That was the beginning of the single market, right? Yes. I mean, neoliberalism in Italy starts already in the 1980s, but say 1992 is a decisive year, right? Because it's the year where the repeated rounds of, of privatizations are, are, are decided, right? But basically, Italy decides that it needs to do away with this uh, supposedly wasteful state capitalism system and embrace the free market and whatever that may mean. What you have there is privatization of, of several firms, I mean, energy firms, telecommunication firm. In a way, you could look at that moment in the 90s, where mostly it's the center-left governments that are in power, as a moment when the center-left, post-communist and left Christian Democrats, tried to engineer the creation of a grand bourgeoisie where there had been none. They basically tried to create it in vitro. So what they do, uh, and this is uh, like a former communist, Massimo D'Alema, he talks about uh, the brave captains, like in a sense, captains of industry, people like Colaninno, 
this is a person who becomes the owner of the telephone firm. Let's create this uh, grand bourgeoisie where we didn't have one. And actually, all these people fail. Ironically, and obviously uh, in a hyperbolic manner, we could see it uh, as paralleling what happens in Russia after the end of the USSR, right, where they created a class of, of oligarchs. Italy tries to do in some ways the, the same. This experiment completely fails as all these entrepreneurs either go bankrupt or uh, sell their firms to foreign companies. It's a complete disaster. I'm speaking with the political sociologist Paolo Gerbaldo. What do we make of Berlusconi in this context? Berlusconi is, uh, in that generation, one of the few canny capitalists, also in this case a family capitalist, and is one who has managed to intercept what is obviously this growing sector of advertising, retail, because it really starts with retail and with real estate and then goes into advertising and from advertising into television. That is hard to deny that he is in his own way was a kind of entrepreneurial genius and one who actually at the outset was very much allied politically with a, with a socialist party. In this context, in a way, he performs, you could say, a functional role not that dissimilar from that of fascism in the 30s and 40s. That is, I mean, represented a general interest of capital that due to the extreme fragmentation of capital in Italy uh, cannot be represented, as it were, by by capital itself. Capital has problems kind of self-organizing and therefore constantly looks for foreign king in some ways, to represent its interests. Liberals in Italy have traditionally been very weak. So what Berlusconi does is really using his media empire and his huge kind of marketing empire, his network of football hooligan clubs, AC Milan, as the basis of, of, of a political party. as a kind of surrogate for, for a political party to represent these interests of the bourgeoisie that otherwise wouldn't be able, basically, to take care of itself. And it does so, I mean, really successfully creating the center-right in Italy that didn't exist before, as you had the center, Christian Democrats, with a strong kind of conservative heart, but also highly diversified internally with also some kind of more progressive, almost social democratic currents within it. And then you had a right that was very much marginalized right, since he was tied to the fascist past. So it was not just really Berlusconi wanted us to give it to him, despite all these antics, obviously, but he was both an entrepreneurial genius, but also kind of a political genius, someone who really creates out of the blue the center right in Italy, a venture that has proved very successful and that continues, in fact, to be successful. Italy has some of the widest regional differences of any country I can think of. The northern part contains some of the richest regions of Europe. The southern part contains some of the poorest. Are there alliances between the elites of these two regions, or do they exist pretty much in their own worlds? There's strong alliances. I mean, again, and, and here is like a classic Gramsci theme, right? I mean, the alliance between the kind of landowners of the south and the kind of industrialists of the north and is something that obviously these days is quite different. Obviously, in the 90s and 2000s, an an, an important trend was Lega and the pool from the north to break from the rest of Italy. But then, in a way, the the situation of prolonged decline led to something different, to a countervailing tendency, where even Lega became a nationalist party. And, for example, they, they tried to establish themselves in the south. And, for example, find some base among entrepreneurs in the South, some entrepreneurial entrepreneurial class in the South being clearly tainted with various mafias. The country has become more economically integrated, both as a result of migration and and as a result of successive waves of uh, economic development. So the role of the South as being basically a sort of market, simply a market for production of northern industry and a place where cheap labor can be sourced is only exacerbated with, indeed, now the South being even poorer than, than it was. So during the 60s and 70s, there was there were at least some attempts to bring manufacturing, to bring industry to the South, while these days is large weights of it, the ones that are not interesting for capital in terms of tourism or whatever, whatever that be, large weights of it are really abandoned to itself. 
Now Italy um, has a prime minister who traces her political lineage pretty directly to Mussolini. Uh, how does this um, emerge out of the class structure we've been talking about? It bespeaks this continuing prevalence of uh, small capitalism over big capitalism. In a way, she represents both small capital and some sections of big capital. And basically what she does is being the bridge between the two. In the time of fascism, the stereotypical supporter of fascism was the pharmacist. And in a way, you could say that kind of the stereotypical supporter of Meloni is not that different, is shop owner, a small entrepreneur, or a small family firm, like a self-employed. So in Italy, we have this phenomenon where we have less than half the number of employees per firm than France and Germany. Firms in Italy, on average, are less than half of what they are in France and, and Germany. And we have this army of self-employed people. 20% of our workforce is self-employed compared to, to 9% in France, 8% in Germany, blah, blah, blah. Like in the US is a similar thing, right? What we were told again and again was that Italy was not entrepreneurial enough, right? Was the Italians were not good at setting up companies, that they were too reliant on employment, uh, that they wanted a posto fisso, as, as it's uh, expressed in Italy, basically a kind of lifelong job. Well, the case, in fact, was that Italy is too entrepreneurial. <laughs> there's too many companies. There's too many self-employed people. There's too many entrepreneurs and, and too few managers. This economy of small firms is economically extremely inefficient. There is a thing in economics that everybody knows. I mean, is economics 101, economy of scale. The size of companies is a key element in their economic efficiency because you have a number of fundamental administrative operations and so on and so forth whose footprint depends on the size of the firm. So what she does, and here we get to the point of basically what she represents in this context, what she does is allowing this firm to survive despite these firms not being sustainable economically. And what she does and what she's already doing is basically creating different leeways, creating different exceptions to the rules, creating different tricks by means of which these micro companies can survive. For example, by uh, skewing uh, the tax structure. They don't pay taxes anyway, do they? Exactly. But, you know, like for a long time, the idea was that tax evasion was a policy failure. How come that, you know, all these firms are managing to not to pay taxes and, you know, tax evasion is estimated at around 90 billion euros in Italy? What the media would tell you is like, is the state that is not managing to rack up uh, these, these taxes. I mean, the more and more you realize uh, with the wisdom of insight that it, it is policy. It is by design. Actually, the government is implementing different policies that are precisely aimed at allowing firms to avoid taxation. For example, now they are changing the rules in terms of how much you can pay in cash as a consequence of EU recommendations. They were lowering whatever the amount to 1,000 or something. Now they want you to, to raise it to 10,000 euros. So you could basically almost buy a car. And that is clearly a measure that is designed basically to make it easier for these companies to avoid taxation. And there's many, many other measures that basically they are, they are doing just to make it easier for these companies to not play by the rules. Big finance, aside from the textbook stories about what finance does, you know, bringing together savers and borrowers and such, I, I also see finance as an important um, uh, arena of class formation. It creates large companies, also creates a bourgeoisie. It's, it's a medium through which the productive sector is um, mm -hmm. organized and run. What about the financial sector in Italy? What does that look like and uh, how is that developed? Perhaps one last thing about these micro companies is also that these companies can only survive by wildly exploiting workers. Precisely because they are constantly on the on the point of sinking, the only way they can uh, stay afloat is by paying workers miserly salaries, and this is why Italy is the only country in Europe that's lost value in, in terms of wages. In terms of the role of finance, it's quite curious. Italy is a rather financially conservative country in, in many respects, where. Also, the process of, of emergence of uh, um, large banks has been slower than in other countries. That's perhaps 
as as a role in a way in which we didn't see uh, the development of, of uh, joint stock companies as much as, as in other countries, where, where also banking was more tied to locality, was more municipal. It came in the form of uh, uh, saving banks, right, that were tied uh, to uh, local charities and local foundations, to cities. And only recently there was this push to create two large banks, Unicredit and Intesa San Paolo, Unicredit being based basically in Milan and, and Intesa San Paolo in Turin. So that may be a reason for this uh, peculiar trajectory of, of Italian capitalism. Interestingly, I mean, basically the only Italian firm that is uh, world famous in, in the finance sector is Generali, which is an insurance company. God knows what will happen, whether these may change the structure of, of Italian capitalism and, and move it towards a less small firm-oriented capitalism. Ideologically, on the left, we are suspicious of large firms for many good reasons and of multinationals. We should also be wary not to fall prey of a sort of cult of small firms that I think sometimes is uh, attractive for certain sections of the left. Definitely, small firms have, are important in many sectors. Uh, perhaps they can, in certain circumstances, also facilitate some degree of make capital more humane, as it were. But in many respects, they can be more exploitative and more inhumane than, than many kind of medium and large firms. Italy it really provides a cautionary tale, right, about not falling in love with small firm capitalism as, as a necessarily more humane capitalism. That kind of scaling up and the uh, transformation of regional into national scale and scope, that's a process the United States went through, what, late 19th, early 20th century. And Italy never went through that. Obviously, you have, you know, like you have, you have large firm, but, but less than, than other European countries, for sure. There have been different factors that have that posed a resistance against that. Uh, partly, precisely, the high degree of regional and, and municipal fragmentation and uh, more generally, I mean, this this reluctance, basically, of different regional bourgeoisies to, to to fuse into one. Perhaps, I mean, also the the, the earlier historical formation of, of the Italian bourgeoisie. We had one already in in the Renaissance. One could say that that that, that it took a more uh, aristocratic form than than in other countries. There was actually some very interesting research about wealthy Florence families being. Uh, <laughs> connected to the, the wealthy foreign families, uh, Florence families of the 16th century and 17th century, right? They basically looked at surnames. Of, of oh, I, see, I saw that research. That was amazing. Uh, yeah. Persistent over centuries. So you see, I mean, it, it is connected to this old rentier capitalism. That also tells you something about why finance is so underdeveloped in Italy, which is very risk-averse. So we know that from Schumpeter, from anyone, from Marx, and so on and so forth, that ultimately the job of the, of the capitalist is to risk his money. And while the Italian pushes is traditionally being more rentier against the idea of having to risk its money, therefore more prone to more rentier forms of, of activity that don't entail that level of risk. That was Paolo Gerbaudo, a sociologist who teaches at King's College London and is also a fellow at the Scuola Normale Superiore in Florence. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, another cover of Metallica's Nothing Else Matters, this by the esteemed pianist Igor Levitt, playing what Levitt modestly calls the transcription by the jazz pianist Fred Hirsch. Till next week, bye.